Genesis is the historical record of the seed of the woman who is Christ and those who belong to him wrestling with the seed of the serpent who is Satan and those who belong to him. In this account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, we see this battle continue to play out and continue to anticipate Christ's ultimate defeat of Satan. God promises uh, that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to the families of the earth. We see this in Abraham's own life when he rescues the inhabitants of Sodom from Kador Laomer, when Abraham blesses Pharaoh and Abimelech. We see it in Isaac's life when he enriches the land with the wells, with water, and brokers a covenant of peace with Abimelech. We see it in Jacob's life when he prospers Laban. And we see it now in Joseph's life when he prospers Potiphar's wife, when he is given the role of overseer of his home. But in each of these instances, there is struggle. There is pushback. There's envy. There's resentment. There is wrestling, like Cain and Abel, like Ishmael and Isaac, like Esau and Jacob. There is conflict and accusation. Satan means accuser. In the apocalypse, Satan is called the accuser of our brothers. And here we see Potiphar's wife acting as a daughter of Satan, an accuser of our brother Joseph. Joseph is nothing but a blessing to Potiphar's house, but he's still rejected. He still encounters attacks and imprisonment. It's not altogether different than Jesus uh, freeing the Gergesenes from the demoniacs and uh, uh, casting the demons into the pigs. He frees these people of this affliction and they ask him to leave. He's rejected. And of course, this ultimately points to the Jewish rejection of Jesus uh, at Calvary. In our passage, there are three different accounts of what happened between Potiphar's wife and Joseph's. First, we have the author's account, who is Moses, or perhaps Joseph himself. Some have suggested Joseph uh, wrote Genesis, but uh, we'll go with the traditional reading. Moses, we have Moses' account. We also have Potiphar's wife's account. Notice Potiphar's wife isn't named. We don't know her name. It's just always referred to as, as Potiphar's wife um, or something along those lines. Uh, her account to the servants and then her account to her husband. So there's three accountings. So um, we'll start off with uh, Moses's account. Moses prefaces this entire episode with what? What does he do? He says, Joseph was beautiful in form and appearance. Sets the stage. We see, we, we know what kind of man Joseph was, young and attractive. Joseph's mother, Rachel, is described with the same language. In uh, Genesis 29, Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. And, of course, we know that Sarah was also uh, beautiful. In Scripture, when someone's described as attractive or, or beautiful, usually certain trials or tribulations follow. Saul and Absalom are described as handsome men, and they both get into trouble. Sarah underwent trials uh, with Pharaoh and Abimelech, uh, who similarly desired to sleep with her. It's not unlike the trial that Joseph is encountering. You see, the covenant seed is threatened in all of these instances, uh, like it is here with Joseph. Now, our passage sets before us another Garden of Eden. It's a recast. We see ourselves in Potiphar's garden, we could say. It's a house garden. Potiphar's wife is like Eve. She's the woman. She's the master's wife. And what does she do? Like Eve, she sees something that she desires. Eve, we're told, she sees fruit that was good for food and pleasing to the eye. It was desirable. And we see that Potiphar's wife 
has a similar temptation with Joseph. Seeing, desiring to take what's not hers to take. Both Eve and Potiphar's wife are succumbing to this. She is a new kind of Eve in that sense. And at the same time, uh, Potiphar's wife is like forbidden fruit that Adam is being tempted with, or Joseph as a new Adam is being tempted with. Or she's also like the serpent. She is speaking deceit. She is trying to tempt Adam into sin, seduce him into transgression. So Joseph finding himself in Potiphar's house in this new garden, in his master's garden, he responds how Adam should have responded. My master's given me this garden. He's given me access to everything in it. He's given me dominion over everything except this one thing. How can I, how can I do this? He responds how Adam should have. He responds how Reuben should have. Reuben finds himself in Jacob's garden, and he takes what's not his. Bilhah, his concubine. He responds how um, Judah should have responded. He takes Tamar. So Joseph is a new Adam showing us a shadowy figure of the perfect second Adam uh, who is to come, Jesus. She casts longing eyes on Joseph or she lifts up her eyes to Joseph and she propositions him, lie with me. And Joseph does the right thing and he refuses. And then what else does he do? This is another thing that he does that Adam doesn't do. He starts preaching to the woman. He starts instructing her. He says, he gives her three reasons why this should not happen. One, it's an abuse of the great trust his master has given him. Number two, it's a sin against his master. And number three, it's a sin against the ultimate master, God. All three of those reasons. And now while there's the obvious sin of adultery here, there is this overlying sin or maybe overarching sin of usurping authority that we see connected to sexual immorality throughout the Bible. <clears throat> uh, sleeping with the wife or wives of authority figures is often association with a coup or usurpation of authority. We see this with Absalom. Absalom sleeps with his father's concubines in front of Israel. We see this with uh, Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines as if to suggest that Abner was trying to start a coup. These things are connected. Some people have suggested that this was what Ham was doing. Um, and that's why his son is cursed. We don't know, but that's, that's one, one uh, uh, possible suggestion. We see it with Reuben sleeping with Jacob's concubine. It's likely that that was a coup. Uh, that sh it, it, this happens right after um, Leah dies. And so he's thinking, okay, who's going to be the next, who's going to be the next wife in line? I'm going to take her and make her mine. I'm going to, I'm going to be the head of this house now. And all of this, of course, is an echo of the fall. All of this is you can be like God if you do this. And the thing is, God wants to give you authority. He wants to elevate you. That's the plan the whole time. But in his timing and in his way, not in this uh, grasping uh, for authority uh, via adultery or sexual immorality that we see in, in uh, Scripture. 
And as, as a result, Joseph is not elevated. He's immediately stripped of his authority and he's sent into the prison pit. So we see that there's not, uh, uh, it's not an immediate, the obedience to God isn't always immediately rewarded. Um, but he is ultimately elevated. And then when he's in the prison pit, there's another kind of, um, God doesn't leave him. He doesn't abandon his soul to Sheol, as it were. So we have more kind of Christological typology here. All right, there's, there's three aspects of the nature of temptation that we see here with uh, Potiphar's wife. The nature of temptation in this passage shows us three things that consist of its attempt to destroy you. One is that it tries to gain initial access. Number two is its persistence. And number three is opportunity or occasion. All three of these things we see in this passage. The first is initial access. We see that in verse 7, Potiphar's wife gives this explicit invitation to lie with her. But then in verse 10, it appears she moderates her request. Joseph doesn't hearken unto her to lie beside her, as one translator put it, or to be with her. So she initially says, lie with me. And then she says, just be with me. Just lie beside me. It's a moderated request, possibly. Just be in the room with me. Just watch TV with me. Um, and what she's doing is she's trying to gain that initial access, which is seemingly harmless. There's nothing wrong with watching TV with my master's wife. But she's trying to gain initial access to, David, uh, uh, to Joseph, taking these seemingly harmless steps, opening up uh, to temptation. Satan is smart. Satan is crafty. The second is persistent. Satan is persistent. We see that she spoke to Joseph day by day. She didn't give up easily. She keeps at it. She continues to tempt him on a daily basis, which is why the Lord's prayer instructs us, instructs us or petitions God to deliver us from evil on a daily basis. And Joseph's imprisonment as St. Chrysostom points out, was a deliverance from evil. It was a deliverance from the temptation of his master's wife. The war against the flesh, the world, and the devil is continual. It is persistent. We are always to remain alert. We're always to be on patrol. We're always to be on our guard for these things. To be ready for the slings and arrows that come by day and the terror that comes by night. And Joseph does this by avoiding her presence as best as he could entirely, resisting her persistent requests in whatever form they came, not placing himself there uh, and presenting himself with an occasion to sin. We see a similar thing with Samson. Samson is persistently pressed by Delilah, but he doesn't remove himself from the situation. He just stays there and he eventually pays for it. Joseph removes himself. He tries to avoid it and he eventually flees from her. And Joseph succeeds where Samson failed. And then this is the third, third uh, aspect, which is opportunity or occasion. Satan waits for this opportune moment. The devil waits to spring his trap when the ability to fail is most easy. We're told all the other servants were gone from the house. Nobody would have known. And then she goes back to her lie with me and grabbing onto him. And what we see here with Joseph is 
he is a man of integrity, but he, you don't become that overnight. He, he got that way through practice. He resisted, and that builds up capital. It builds up capital, which creates virtue in a man, Amen. which then gives you perseverance and integrity in these moments of high temptation. You're not caught off guard. You've built up that reflex of, nope, I'm out of here. St. Jerome likens Joseph leaving his garment behind to leaving everything behind for the sake of the gospel. It's this radical leaving, <laughs> leaving behind and, and, and pursuing, uh, pursuing Christ, pursuing the good news here kind of foreshadowed in Joseph. Now to the undiscerning and carnal mind, Potiphar's wife's desire for Joseph might be turned into a romance novel or a movie uh, of a passionate love affair, something that might romanticize a burning desire as if this is what love is about. We see this all the time in our culture as if she loved Joseph, but we know that this isn't the case. We see that her supposed love for him is turned into rage and malice because her love is not love at all. Her love is lust, and lust is not love. Love, true love, or agape love, will endure slights and offenses, whereas lust is easily turned into rage and malice. It's why Amnon could so easily despise Tamar after he got what he wanted. Lust for someone is nothing but veiled hatred. Solomon teaches us that the adulterous woman is a trap. Her steps go down to Sheol. She is enslaved to the service of Satan, and Satan hates you. He wants you dead. He's a murderer. Jesus says that he was a murderer from the beginning, and this is what we see revealed in the figure of Potiphar's wife as the serpent. She's a murderer. Second, Potiphar's wife seizes Joseph's garment as Joseph fled. Um, one commentator says it is better to lose a good coat uh, than a good conscience. She seizes his garment like his brothers seized his garment. Um, he loses his position of authority among his brothers. Now he loses his position of authority in Potiphar's house. And in each instance, we have this, uh, we have this garment. Um, there's an atmosphere that they, they bring the garment to Jacob, say, say, look, he's dead. And of course, going down into the prison pit is also a type of death. So there's an atmosphere of murder that we see in both of these environments. We see that Potiphar's wife it wasn't that she loved him and then changed his mind when he uh, rebuffed her advances. It's that she hated him from the very beginning. And, and it was veiled, and she wanted to destroy him. And either destroy him morally through her adultery, and when she couldn't do that, she tries to destroy him in kind of a cancel culture kind of a way. He needs to be removed from his position. So she, she hates him from the very beginning, just like Jesus tells us about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. All right, the second thing is that Satan is a liar. We see a daughter of Satan imitating her father as a murderer. Now we see a daughter of Satan imitating her father as a liar. Jesus says that Satan is a father of lies. When he speaks, it is lies. And that's what Potiphar's wife does. Her accusations are lies. They want to destroy him, and she doesn't care that her husband's house is destroyed in the process. And this is the satanic aspect of of what's going on, this accusation, this accuser of our brother. 
She says that her husband brought Joseph in to mock them. The word mock here can be translated um, as laugh. It's Zahak. He laughs, Isaac. It's the same language that was used with Ishmael. Ishmael's mocking, and so he needs to, he needs to be removed. It's the same story structure. Hebrew servant kicked out by an Egyptian mistress for mocking. Um, he didn't really mock, but it was, it's the same thing with uh, Sarah and Hagar. It's an Egyptian servant kicked out by a Hebrew mistress for mocking. What we see here is Joseph is identifying with the sinful man. He is experiencing what the cursed man experiences in Ishmael. That's what God is speaking to us. He's saying, look, Joseph is experiencing what Hagar experienced. In our own time, we've seen the tactics of Potiphar's wife used in the Me Too movement. Comparisons to third wave feminism have rightly been made several years ago. It's kind of a passe comparison, so I'm not going to belabor the point. If we take into account human nature, which uh, transcends cultures, we know how much jealousy persists in the hearts of men. See how this wicked woman frames the accusations in such a way as to stoke the embers of envy that were likely already present with Joseph's subordinates. These other servants who, who are likely uh, Egyptians or Canaanites, they're not Hebrews, they're from some other tribe besides the Hebrew tribe. She subtly crafts her accusations by drawing uh, her attention to his Hebrewness. Look, this Hebrew, not Egyptian, not Canaanite, this Hebrew is brought in to mock us. She's siding with the servants as if she's one of the servants. And she's trying to put this gap of animosity between their overseer and the rest of the servants. And not only is she pitting Joseph against the rest of her servants, she's pitting her master against the rest of the servants, her husband. She says, he's the one who brought him in to mock you. Everything she's doing is maximizing the discontent and the envy and the dissension in this home. She's carefully crafting her words to maximize dissent. And she's placing the blame on everybody else except herself. It's my husband. It's Joseph. And she's able to appear credible because she has the garment. Right? She's got a little bit of truth, and then she mixes it in with a bunch of lies. Then we have her account to her husband. This is the third one. In verse 16, we're told that she kept his garment until his master came home. And I can't help but to think that Moses is giving a compliment to Joseph here, saying she waited till his master came home. He could have said she waited till her husband came home. She waited till her master came home. But that's not what he says. She waited till his master came home, as if to say Joseph is obedient. Joseph is obedient to his master. And as if to say she's not his master. What does she do? She commands him, lie with me says, no, you're not my master. Potiphar is my master. I'm not going to do this thing. I think Moses is paying a subtle compliment there. And then when speaking with her husband, she continues to blame him. 
She says, this Hebrew who you brought in, this is on you. You're to blame for this, Potiphar. She herself is a predator, and she is acting like the victim. <laughs> right? She's framing everything as if everyone else is to blame, and she's the victim. It's the sin of feigning victim status, status while being at fault is kind of ubiquitous in our culture. She shrewdly, there's a, there's a slight difference between the way that she talks to the servants and the way that she talks to her husband. She leaves out the detail of Joseph coming in to sleep with her. She leaves it implicit. And I think that this probably, she doesn't want to explicitly mention it. And I think that this is subtle. I think she's trying to avoid what, her, what she knows her husband probably already suspects. which is that she's an unfaithful wife. In both accounts, Potiphar's wife uses a garment to deceive, which, as we have gone over, is a theme in Genesis. She has this garment, and she's deceiving everybody with it. Same thing with Jacob and Isaac. Puts on the garments, receives the blessing. Um, <clears throat> same thing with Jacob's sons, deceiving Jacob. They have the garment, your son is dead. Um, so we have this theme throughout uh, Genesis, and of course this goes back to the garden where garments are given to uh, Adam and Eve, which of course then point forward to Christ, who we wrap ourselves in, who we put on as a garment, uh, and through whom we receive the blessing of forgiveness of sins and the inheritance of eternal life. So that's another reason why the garment theme is so big. All right, last section here. All right, so upon hearing his wife, Potiphar becomes angry. But we're not told what the object of his anger is. We're only told that he's angry. You know, it could be Joseph. It could be that he's mad at Joseph. It could be that he believes his wife. But I don't think so. And I grant that this is speculation, but I think a man in his position, especially in the ancient world, is going to pick up on these things. I think he's going to know what his wife is like. I think he's going to know that his wife is lying to him. He knows what kind of man Joseph is. We know what kind of man Joseph is. And Potiphar was able to judge rightly, here's a trustworthy man. But he can't not do anything. The cultural pressures of being in a man in his position, he's got to do something. And I think it's likely that he's protecting Joseph by imprisoning him rather than having him killed. This would be an egregious offense, particularly in the ancient world. And instead of having him killed, he has him put in prison. And I think he's not angry at Joseph. I think he's angry at his wife for just for ruining his house and, and taking away the best servant he ever had. I think that that's probably what he's angry with. Uh, real quick, he's, uh, he's put in a prison or um, literally, it's called a house of roundness, the king's prison. And these uh, we've discovered uh, in archaeological digs in Egypt. I just I bring this up because uh, I've been talking with people who are interested in Mormonism, and I've been talking to some Mormons, and there's no archaeological evidence for for the Book of Mormon, the kind of like this revision of history of Jesus coming to the Americas. There's no archaeological evidence for it. And so this is just another thing. Our, our, our scriptures have archaeological evidence of, of what has happened. Just an apologetic point. 
Joseph is, of course, a Christ figure, and we see him exemplify what we see in the Proverbs of the righteous man. In uh, Proverbs 1-7, um, he, he fears God. He's loyal and dependable, and he enjoys favor and good repute in the sight of God and, and man, uh, Proverbs 3. He's not seduced by the lips of the loose woman, Proverbs 5. Uh, Proverbs 6, the adulteress stalks a man's very life. But Joseph flees with his life. And then we also have uh, Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant is seen with Joseph as well. Joseph is imprisoned and counted among the transgressors, which is how Isaiah describes uh, Jesus as a suffering servant, counted among the transgressors. So we have uh, Joseph in prison, and uh, we start to see him become elevated again. It's just a recycling of the story. It's a repetition of the story. So we see that the schemes of the wicked are to no avail when set against the purposes of God. And we'll get into that next time. But I want to end with a, uh, a comment from John Calvin. He has this to say. I think this is good. The Spirit of God gives us this example in a young man. So what excuse is left for older men and women if they voluntarily give way to a light temptation? To this, therefore, we must bend all our efforts, that regard for God alone may subdue all carnal affections. We must make sure that we value a good and upright conscience more than the plaudits of the whole world. For no one will prove that he loves virtue except the person who is content to have God as his only witness and who does not hesitate to submit to any disgrace rather than be deflected from his duty. Therefore, we must banish vain pretexts, uh, pretexts such as, I wish to avoid offense, or I am afraid in case men wrongly interpret what I have done. Because God is not really honored unless we ignore our own reputation and follow him wherever he calls us. God does not want us to be indifferent about our own reputation, but he does not want us to place it above his will. So let the faithful endeavor to edify their neighbors by the example of an upright life. To this end, let them prudently guard against every mark of evil. But if it be necessary to endure the infamy of the world, let them follow their divine vocation. Let's pray.